Well, hello there, listeners. Welcome to this week's episode of the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm personal trainer, wellness coach, and positive psychology practitioner, Darlene Marshall, and I'm your host. And last week, I was writing an article for the More Better Substack, the Substack for the show. Shout out, we have a Substack for the show. It's at betterthanfine.substack.com. Um, so anyway, I'm writing this article and I go to drop in a link to an episode of BTF on Upward Spirals. And I realize we don't have a current episode of Better Than Fine about Upward Spirals. And why do we not have a current episode of Better Than Fine and Upward Spirals? If you don't know what Upward Spirals are, you're about to find out. But like broad strokes, this really foundational concept in positive psychology. There is a ton of research and practice built on this idea of upward spirals. How do we not have an episode of upward spirals? I don't know what's wrong with me. Clearly, we have to fix that. So for some of you, just the phrase upward spirals probably sounds like you know, woo-woo, hippy-dippy, positivity, mumbo-jumbo. But I'm glad to say it's not any of those things. Um, upward spirals are actually documented psychological phenomena. And upward spiraling starts with learning about positive emotion. And if we're going to learn about positive emotion, we're going to be talking about the high priestess of positive emotion, Barbara Fredrickson. And a lot of what we're going to talk about today is going to be based on her so let's start by diving into that, and then we're going to build from there. Because I want you, by the end of this episode, to really understand foundationally, not just what upward spirals are in concept, but how you can be using practices to jumpstart upward spirals in your own life and anybody that you influence and work with. Cool, cool. If we're going to do that, we got to start with positive emotion. So what's the deal? What is the deal with positive emotional practice? When we feel a positive emotional experience, something like joy, humor, you get a good belly laugh going with you and your friends, um, or even much more subtle things. It doesn't have to be big, strong, positive emotion. It can be simple things like, like amusement, like, oh, a cute cat video. Uh, it can be something, I love this, serendipity, right? Just the idea that you're in the flow of the river of life and it is carrying you in directions that you want to go. That's serendipity. When we feel these emotional experiences, you might not realize it, but it is actually shifting your neurology and your cognition, your nervous system and the way that you think. So our senses become more open, right? We're more open to the environment around us. Our minds are more flexible in our thinking. We become sponges of experience when we have these positive emotional experiences. We're more engaged with our environment. We're more curious. We're more interested. Now, hopefully you're interested. Hopefully you're curious and you're thinking, well, like, how's that all work? What's that look like? Well, to understand positive emotion... First, we've got to dig in a little bit on challenging emotion, which might seem counterintuitive, but ride this out with me. And partly we teach it this way because this is also how the research unfolded. For decades, there was research into difficult and challenging emotion. And they kind of poo-pooed like, oh, yeah, the, the good stuff is good. Like, it's a nice to have, but it's not serious science. 
which is interesting because now we know that teaching people to be flexible and open to positive emotional experience is actually part of how we learn to deal with and cope with our negative sides. But anyway, I digress. So with challenging emotions, think like fear, anger, we're focused on whatever the focal point of that emotional experience is or the problem, the, ch the challenge. So if you've listened to the episode, Emotions or Information, that's from June of 2022, you've heard me talk about why that is, right? From an evolutionary psychological perspective, it gave us an advantage. So think about it like if a bear goes busting through the door next to me, I don't want to be thinking about what I'm going to make for dinner. I want to be dealing with that problem. And so that's called a distinct thought action tendency. The stimulus provides me with the thought, the emotional reaction, and then that emotion, depending on what that emotion is, I'm going to have a specific response. So fear, I'm going to try to escape. The bear comes busting through that door. I'm going to try to go out the other door. <laughs> Anger, right? That stimulus, let's say it wasn't a bear. Let's say it was, uh, I don't know, I've got a neighbor who's not very nice. Let's say it was the neighbor comes in and they're interrupting the show and they're yelling. In an anger response, you feel like, okay, I can hold this boundary or, or maybe even you attack because you think you have the resources to respond to that challenge, to that threat. Another good example is disgust. We all know what disgust feels like, right? We've all had a bite of food that was a little bit turned and yucky, right? So disgust, you wanna repel if it's a, a person or a being, or you want to expel if it's an experience, right? You want to get away from you. And so this, this reaction, this thought action tendency for challenging emotions, for difficult emotions, it's a specific, typically one-to-one -one thought action tendency. Pleasant emotions don't work like that. So positive pleasurable experiences open us up. They make us more malleable. And then we end up going out with more options. Instead of a specific thought action, we've got all kinds of possibilities opening up inside of us in our perception of the world. And then we go off and explore and we try new things and we learn about ourselves in our world. We're curious, we're connected, and we become more adaptive in the process. So just like I mapped those emotions one-to-one, -one, let's, let's do it with a couple of positive emotions. So joy causes us to play and through play is often how human beings explore their world in a positive way. Interest. We all know what it's like to be curious about something, to have something hook our attention. So when we're interested in that way, we're not just curious, but we keep searching for more. We're going to dive into deeper details and we're going to learn in the process. Or this, here's one that might be a little counterintuitive if you think about this from an adaptive evolutionary psychology lens, like everything I've said so far probably sounds like, yep, that would benefit our ancestors. Contentment. Think for a second about contentment, what that does for us. The thought action is to savor the experience that you're in, that whatever it is that's helping you to feel like contented and whole and connected. And, right, and what that does is it actually starts to reshape from a calm nervous system our perception of the world and our place in it. And not for nothing, we're in a moment that the world is maybe not as awesome as we'd like it to be. 
I think there's a lot of people that could use that, right? That feeling of groundedness, of contentment, of savoring something positive. I got another one that I think we struggle with, though. This is actually one of my favorite ones. When I teach positive emotion, when I teach upward spirals, I always make sure that I talk about this. It's pride. We are taught, depending on your upbringing, depending on your cultural origins, we're not just taught that pride is a bad thing. Some of us are taught that pride is actually like a sin. So how could I be saying like, oh, this is an adaptive, positive, emotional experience. But when we pursue something and we feel a sense of accomplishment, we allow ourselves that positive emotional payoff, what it actually does is validate our progress when we feel a positive sense of pride, not arrogance, right? Arrogance doesn't do us any favors, but pride of like, yeah, I did a thing and it felt good and I am proud of that effort. What it does is it fills us back up. It validates our perception of our own worth. And then from that place of feeling like, yeah, look at this thing and how awesome it is, we then want to pursue more accomplishment. What's the next milestone? What's the next thing I can create and contribute? Um, it helps us to continue to strive to be even better and it fills us up in the process. So all of these different positive emotions that have not specific thought action tendencies, but different options that open up for us in the experiencing of the positive emotion, broaden, right? They open us up our connection to the world. And then because of that broaden, that empowerment, that different perspective on the world, we go off, we learn more, we connect more, we're more adaptive, which Barbara Fredrickson calls the broaden and build theory of positive emotion. But this episode isn't about positive emotion, now is it? Uh, no perdoodles, it's not. You're listening to the Better Than Five podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall, and this episode is about how do we jumpstart upward spirals? So we've mapped positive emotion. We've mapped Barbara Fredrickson's work, right? Okay, we're broadening. We're learning new things. We're building on those skills. Fredrickson doesn't stop with positive emotion, though. No, 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 no. She theorized that if you could provide the stimulus for positive things consistently enough, maybe even multiple positive things, we'd see this shift in well-being that would continue to accumulate and maybe even in a big way. So how might that actually work, right? If we, if we think about like, okay, positive emotion, it opens me up, I explore things, I get new resources, I make new friends, I learn new stuff, broaden and build. How could we keep that rolling and what would the cumulative effect of that be? So Fredrickson theorized that if you had multiple things, so multiple practices, events, stimulus, multiple factors in your life, that produce the broaden and build thing, it would start to lift the person up, it would improve their well-being and maybe even the well-being of the people around them. And she calls that upward spiral theory. You get two or more stimulus that create positive feedback loops and start to lift the person's well-being and affect. Digging in a big deeper. So all of us have a preset bandwidth in our neurophysiology for all different kinds of well-being factors, right? We all can get 
a certain threshold of like, I feel so well, or I feel so not well, so poorly. Um, so it's not just well-being. So well-being is a whole, but there's also like how good of a mood can you get in and how long can you sustain that positive mood? Um, there's how sensitive we all are to our positive emotional experiences. We don't think of it like that, right? Most of us walk around in the world thinking, yeah, the person I met at the grocery store, my partner, my dad, like we all kind of have the same bandwidth, right? Zero to 60 or whatever. But that's not actually how it works. Just like I have to wear glasses, most of the you know, context right now, but I wear glasses because I can't see very well. Whereas I know people who have incredible sight better than 2020. That's a bandwidth, right? That's a, a sensitivity to a sense. Emotional sensitivity is a thing. And some of us have a different bandwidth than the other and how intensely and how sensitively we feel our emotions. So you've got this preset bandwidth. What if you could intentionally engage in practices that shift you toward the more and more positive side of your individual bandwidth, whether we're talking about well-being or life satisfaction or positive emotional sensitivity? And why would that be adaptive? Why would that help us? Well, if we know that positive emotional experiences open us up, they make us more flexible, broaden and build, staying on the positive end, especially if it's my extreme positive end, right? Other than just like people want to be happy. It has all kinds of positive adaptations in our lives. We're healthier, we're more connected, we're more productive, we're clearer thinkers, we get better sleep. Like there's all these great things that happen um, when we are able to stay in the positive side. So in her research, she very briefly references this idea of vantage sensitivity, which comes from another set of researchers named Plusenbelsky. We're not going to chase that rabbit hole too deep. But vantage sensitivity is how sensitive are you to take advantage when a positive thing happens in your life? And if you're from the United States, you're probably familiar with Winnie the Pooh. So I want you to think of it like we've got Eeyores and we got Pooh Bears. And if you know, if you don't know, it's a cartoon for children uh, from the United States. Eeyore is this donkey who's always kind of grumpy and everyone's still nice to him, but he's just like kind of sad. And then Pooh Bear is always like super optimist, right? So Eeyore, the sad one, isn't you know, something happens and he sees it as like neutral or negative, whereas the same thing happens to Pooh and Pooh's like, this is great, right? Because Pooh has higher vantage sensitivity. Pooh can take advantage of the good stuff when it comes along. So Fredrickson theorizes that what if we have practices that increase our sensitivity to take advantage of positive experience? We're more sensitive to the good stuff. And personally, I have unquestionably noticed this in my work. I think there are some, some practices that really shift this. And the cool thing is some of them have been documented and given validity. So we have research into upward spirals where people are like, huh, you know what? I think that yoga and meditation might be an upward spiral. I think that gratitude journaling might be an upward spiral. And then they go and they measure it against a control. And we've got 
a few dozen now, measured positive spiral primers. Things that increase vantage sensitivity, the person becomes more sensitive to positive emotion experience, and then we get a compounding effect when they are consistent with their practices and that ends up in an increase in well-being. And not only is that super cool, but if we choose to use those things in our lives, we can jumpstart an upward spiral. Boom. Whole point of the episode. Yeah. Okay. Some of the things I'm going to share is I'm going to review the evidence might sound like, oh, I've, I've, she's talked about this before. I've heard this before, but I'm going to try to take a fresh angle on them. I'm going to try to take the upward spiral angle. So even if it seems like I'm talking about things we talked about on the show before, consider that this might be a different reason to engage with those practices, right? If I, let's say like, you know, we did the episode on um, exercise for mental health. And obviously I talked about movement. Well, if I'm trying to prime an upward spiral, increase my vantage sensitivity. Yeah, that's going to help my mental health in general, but like I might be doing it for a different reason, just for general boost of well-being. Um, So if you're someone who knows that you want more well-being, You know you want to be in a better mood. You know you want to have more good days. You want to be more pleasant to be around. All of those are good reasons to think about this upward spiral effect and how you could be using these practices to prime the pump for yourself. And I just also want to drop in here. You know, you don't, we think as people that we move the baseline by having these big life milestones, right? Like, oh, I bought a house or a car. I got a promotion. And it's not that those things aren't cool, but studies in well-being show us that when a good thing like that happens, a big mega event like that happens, it's a bump, right? Like you get a bump in well-being and then you return to baseline, right? Like you might think, oh, having a new car is going to make me so much happier than my junkie car. And it might for a couple of weeks, And then you adapt to it. That's called hedonic adaptation. You adapt to that thing. You get used to having around and then it doesn't really like give you the boost anymore. But when we look at these kinds of positive priming activities, the types of stuff I'm talking about when I'm talking about upward spirals, when I'm talking about vantage sensitivity, those are little things. They're little actions. And they don't boost our well-being by like, a dramatic change in our life circumstance, what they do is they shift our perception of the life we're already in. And we're going to talk about a little bit of that in a second, but I just want to throw that in there that as I'm talking about this stuff, you might think like, these aren't big things, Darlene. Like, why are you making such a big deal out of them? But I'm making a big deal out of them because it's actually like, the, you know, your grandmother's adage here that the little things compounded together are where the big result comes. And it's the consistency of engaging with the practices that actually build a life and a lifestyle, not the like, ooh, I got, you know, a work trip to Vegas or whatever. Like, yeah, that'll be fun. But what happens when you come back and you're just back in your normal life as opposed to someone who's engaging with these practices regularly? So the obvious question is going to be, what jumpstarts this stuff, right? Um, I'm sorry to say that if you go and Google it, like starting an upward spiral, upward spiral practices, um, you're going to find a whole bunch of nonsense. And unfortunately, some of that nonsense is actually like flat out wrong. Um, I was on some kind of bigger named wellness websites, just kind of looking at what was out there. And I was actually really disappointed uh, by how few of them were accurate 
And, and there were some out there that I was like, oh, that practice is actually, does it build well-being? Like that practice can actually pop somebody's well-being bubble. Um, but let's talk about what we can do to actually jumpstart an upward spiral. Because you're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall. Let's get to the jumpstarting practices. And for starters, work with your physiology. <laughs> this one should seem obvious to the regular fans of the show, but if you're just joining, I'll see it from the kids here at home. Um, if you are eating well and you are sleeping well, you're going to have a better platform. If you think of it like a garden, you'll have a lot more big, beautiful blooms if you put some like plant food or compost into the soil. Like rich soil produces better flowers and vegetables. Taking care of your baseline physiological needs like adequate sleep, water, and food, you'll have a richer soil for your practices. Okay, so what are our actual practices? Number one, we're going to kick off with my old favorite. If you're a fan of the show, you know, movement. Movement increases the sensitivity to the neurochemicals that we associate with positive emotional experiences, like serotonin, like dopamine, there's a whole bunch of myokines underneath there. Like there is a bunch going on in your neurophysiology that when you move your body, it shifts your state. And then we know that all kinds of good things happen, but let's look at this specifically. So the OG study in movement and positive emotion, college students, they looked at people who'd exercised, people who exercised would report more positive emotional experiences, more good things happening to them in their lives for the next 24 hours after they exercise than on the days they didn't exercise. So what's going on there? People just nicer to you when you're in gym clothes? No, obviously that's not true. Now, from that initial set of studies, it was theorized like, okay, maybe it's just that happy people move more right? When you're happy, you're more likely to report good things and happy people just must move their bodies more. So on the days you feel good, it must be the days that you exercise, right? So that was the standard wisdom for a while, 20 years, I think. And then a very clever study comes along. Take a bunch of active people, park them on the couch, see what happens. Within a few days, those active people start showing signs of depression. After about a week, they started begging the researchers to allow them to exercise because they were struggling so hard. And that is the study, the set of studies that flipped the whole script on its head, right? Instead of it's that happy people move more, that was the set of studies where we realized like, no, 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 movement actually makes us happy. We're doing it wrong. So you could start a movement practice specifically aimed at jumpstarting an upward spiral. And this is something that I do with new clients. Oftentimes new clients, I will start prescribing them lifestyle practices. Some of them, what we're talking about in this episode, intentionally to jumpstart the upward spiral effect, because I know it's going to make them more malleable to other changes in their lives. And one of the first ones is always movement. And if you're thinking like, but what movement, Darlene? Go check out that episode I just mentioned, Exercise for Mental Health, or go over to the Substack. There's a bunch of resources and ideas in both places. 
but specifically about how you can start movement practices aimed at mental health. But beyond that, move your body, exercise, do things you like, and you're more likely to do them consistently, which is actually one of the upward spirals. The upward spiral theory of lifestyle change is what that one is called, Barbara Fredrickson, where she looked at what are the ways that we could prime movement to prime an upward spiral. And what she found was if you there's anything that you like about the movement experience, you'll do it more frequently, you'll do it more consistently, and then you're more likely to get the well-being benefit. So pick things you like. So that's movement, number one. Number two, meditation. Any meditation practice, regardless of modality, because not all meditations are the same. There are different types of meditation practices that do cause different adaptations in your physiology, in your mindset, in your brain container. But all meditation practices help to calm the nervous system. And obviously that's going to help people connect more to positive emotional experiences, right? If I'm all fight or flighty, right? That's a challenging emotional experience, fight or flight. But a regulated nervous system, it makes it easier to connect with positive emotional experiences. I'm going to have a better time connecting if I'm in neutral gear than if I'm already mad. Now, that benefit is partly due to the documented increased awareness in our stress. Regular meditators know when something comes along that has stressed them out and they can recognize that threshold of like, nope, this is taking me down the wrong path much earlier. And meditation, you practice concentration, which helps with self-regulation, self-control. You can pick up on your own behavior and choose to make changes, which we know helps you make a more positive lifestyle. And one factor of self-compassion, meditation helps us to build non-judgment of our own experience. And we need non-judgment in order to have self-compassion, to not be upset with ourselves, to feel less shame. Like there's all these protective factors that happen with something as simple as a meditation practice. And as I said a moment ago, depending on the practice, some forms of meditation are better at priming upward spirals than others. One of the best upward spiral primer meditations something called loving kindness meditation. It's also known as metta. Now in a second, we're going to talk about positive, um, intentional, emotional practices. But loving kindness meditation is a compassion meditation where you practice feeling compassion for yourself, for others, for suffering. And all meditations are about practicing a particular state in the mind that then shifts your cognition toward that state, right? That's the one of the points of meditation is you're practicing a way of thought. So loving kindness meditation is practicing the thoughts of loving kindness, of compassion. And we know that when you practice loving kindness meditation, you experience more of an upward spiral priming effect. So that practice falls in two of our buckets. Bucket one was movement. Bucket two was meditation. Bucket three here, our third class of practices, is intentional, positive, emotional practice. Intentional, positive, emotional practice. You've heard of gratitude. 
right? Basically, you're trying to shift your sensitivity, your vantage sensitivity through intentional emotional practices, one of which is gratitude. We already just talked about another one is loving kindness meditation. It's metta. Because that's an intentional, like, I'm trying to shift my experience of my life and my world by engaging with practicing how do I feel this emotion? How do I choose that? And how do I condition my brain and my body toward that? And I want to tell you one of my absolute favorite practices that we did when I was in grad school studying positive psychology. So at University of Pennsylvania, we did this practice. It's called a positivity portfolio. I'm going to walk you through it. And I want to tell you a little bit about why I love it so much. So you pick any positive emotion that you want more of in your life. And I hope listening to this right now that you're going to do this. Do this with me. It's going to be great. Pick a positive emotion that you want more of in your life. And at the time, I chose joy. I was living alone. I had just been divorced right before I got to grad school. Um, I was far from my family. All I was doing was working, studying, sleeping, rinse, repeat seven days a week. Like that was it. I was like, yeah, I want more joy. So the official instructions of the positivity portfolio is to gather the things in your life that remind you of that emotion, to put them into like a folder, like a folio. But I'm a pretty tactile person. I'm not going to get a lot out of like flipping through like a folder. So instead, I chose to lay out an altar to joy in my bedroom. So I laid out this altar. I put like my favorite crystals. I put this perfume that I really loved so I could like waft it under my nose. I had like tchotchkes from different vacations or like meaningful things that I had done, souvenirs, mementos. I laid them all out. And then I had a couple of photo albums of my family. I put them on the altar. I had my ukulele there. And so for the practice, for the actual assignment, we were supposed to engage with our portfolio for five minutes a day for a week. And so what I would do is I'd sit, I'd waft the perfume, maybe I'd spritz it in the air, I'd pull out my ukulele and I'd look at these objects and I'd play happy songs, I'd flip through the pictures because I'm practicing what what it's like to feel joy. And my biggest takeaway, and even just thinking about it now, I feel a little dumb for having not put this math together before, but this is is a moment of self-compassion, right? I don't need to judge myself. I can just feel my things. So my biggest takeaway was the realization of how much of my joy, my experience of joy ties to people I care about because I'd spent most of my life being like a high achiever, chasing goals and checking boxes. I just gotten divorced. Um, But the re that was a big realization. I've been gone for, I think at that point I had been gone for 18 years from my town I grew up in and I knew that people mattered. I'd always thought of myself as an extrovert, but I thought extrovert meant I'm just a good time at a party because I do love a party. Like shout out, invite me to your stuff. Um, I love a party. But that, that practice is what dawned in my mind. Like, wait, no, I don't get my joy from checking boxes. I get my joy from deep connections with people I care about. You could practice your own version of the positivity portfolio. I'm going to write it up on, by the time you're listening to this, it'll already have instructions up on the Better Than Fine Substack, more better. Uh, But I want, I, I so encourage you to try it. 
it, it was transformative. It wasn't the most transformative of the practices, but it was pretty close. Like very soon after practicing, this is when I actually decided to move home to live with my family um, and, and leave the city. Anyway, I could talk about this all day, but we have a list to get back to. Let's get back to our list. So one was movement. Two was meditation. Three, intentional, positive, emotional practices. Gratitude practice, loving kindness meditation, positivity portfolio. Number four, an old favorite here on Better Than Fine, time spent in nature. Beginning of the summer, did an episode, Ode to the Great Outdoors. You want to hear me deep dive into nature, like nature and positive you know, psychology, science, I go nuts in that episode. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it here, but time spent in nature. We know that when you spend time in nature, it helps to re-regulate your nervous system, which is going to have a big effect on all of the things we're talking about. But the outcomes of all of that, better overall health, increased social engagement, one of these positive psychology phrases here, Increase social engagement. You want to see people more. You feel more connected. You feel less lonely. You spend more time with other people, which we know humans are pack animals. We need other people. Improved focus. Better coping with stress. We all want that right now. Go outside. Lower aggression. That's another one I think many of us could use. Enhanced mood. Boosted self-esteem. But all of this falls under an umbrella of what time spent in nature actually does for us, which is called self Transcendence. Self-transcendence is a collection of different emotions. Gratitude is one of them. Awe is another one. Where we feel like we are part of a larger whole, right? We're part of something bigger than ourselves. Whether that is that as a human being, I am also of nature, right? Like I didn't just poof, apparate out of existence. Like I am of this, the materials of this planet. And so are you, right? Like that's the kind of thing that time and nature helps us to feel connected bigger than ourselves. That's self-transcendent. And then our last big one, I'm going to go a little bit deeper on this one too. And that's self-concordant goals. I've talked about self-concordance on the show before. And when I've talked about it, I've mostly used the phrase like, oh, it's goals that align with your authentic self. But as I was preparing for this episode, I went a little deeper in some of my old notes. And I think that I'm not doing a full justice to self-concordant goals and why they prime upward spirals. So let's, let's look at it a little bit deeper. There is a theory around goals alignment and upward spirals researched by Sheldon and Houster Marco. When you set goals that are self-concordant, they're aligned in three ways if they're going to prime an upward spiral. So let's break these three down. Projection of yourself. Are the goals I'm setting aligned with who I think I am? That one we've talked about before in the show, right? Um, Who I think I am, this projection of myself, I'm setting goals that align. Check. The direction of your life, right? So I'm not setting a goal that I'm like, okay, that's my authentic self, but this is the way that my life is going. They're divergent right? That makes authentic goal setting really hard. So we want to align that authentic sense of self with a direction in life and goals that affirm that direction of life, not just for you, but also for your family and the people that are important to you. 
which I thought was interesting. That was, you know, we, we talked about self-concordance in the past, but this is a little bit bigger than self-concordance, right? It's got to work with my life. And then this is actually the most important factor I think I was missing when I've talked about it before. Aligning with the social structures around you. Meaning that in order for it to prime an upward spiral, it's not just you, it's not just you and your family, it's that you're also within the structures of your world, you can get the resources and have the opportunities to actually achieve those goals. And I think this is another one where people are feeling like, I don't have the resources, I don't have the opportunities, I have the goals, but I can't get there. And we see a tension here a lot in the coaching space where we're told like, ah, bootstrap, hustle culture, rise and grind. But if you're saying that to people who can't get what they need to get the things that they want, it just creates a shame spiral, right? It creates a pressure in them about like, well, what's wrong with me that I can't do it? You're telling me to hustle. I'm hustling as hard as I can. I still can't make it. But they're in a system that doesn't allow them to make it. So I think that that's really interesting to consider when we're talking about goal setting and upward spirals. It's not just any old goal, right? It can't be my dad gave me the goal. This is like the third time I mentioned my dad in this episode. I must have my dad on my mind. Um, my giving my dad is like, go do that thing. But it's not aligned with me, right? Or I can't set a goal that completely disregards my family. And I'm just like, ah, you, you'll be fine. Too bad for you. I'm achieving. It's got to have all of that aligned to prime the upward spiral when we're talking about our goals. So when I work with a client, I try really hard to dial into their interests and their momentum and where they want to go. Because I think when our goals are aligned in this way, right, with ourselves, with our environment, with the people that care about us, and we can get the resources, we grow, we grow into that future of who we want to be. And the upward spiral gets continued to be perpetuated because we feel that sense of achievement. I hope you hear me weaving together all the ideas in this episode. You feel that pride. You let yourself feel the payoff. And then you set a new set of self-concordant goals. And you continue to grow toward that. You keep growing. And when I say growing, I'm specifically meaning measurable increases in well-being and in life satisfaction. Right? So it's not just growing all willy-nilly. It's not growing for the sake of growing. It's growing toward a better future and a better sense of self. Because that's really what all this upward spiral stuff means to me. Right? How do I support someone who isn't where they want to be and I'm guiding them where they grow into whom they're looking to become? And how do I make those choices for myself? How is it shaping where and who and what I want to be through my own choices about my life? Using my neurophysiology, let's break that word down, neuro, neurology, physiology, my body. Using my neurophysiology and my behavior choices, right? There's my psychology side to shape my emotional experience and make me more sensitive to the good stuff, more positive about my own life. Not because I think that the world is made of like sunshine and unicorn farts, right? That would be toxic positivity. 
but because I want to be as resilient and optimistic as I possibly can, no matter what is going wrong in the world. So that I could be a force for positive change, right? It's not that I'm ignoring the world. It's that I want to make the world better. And if I'm going to do that, I have to be resilient. I have to be optimistic. I have to be able to handle both the tension of the challenge, right? I have the capacity for that. And I have the creativity and capability to contribute. And I say all that because sometimes I feel like I'm encountering more and more people out in the world who are dismissive of the well-being sciences because they think it's not relevant as the world gets difficult and scary and challenging. I think being in a difficult world actually makes it more relevant. In a difficult world, it's harder to be a force of positive change and good, which means that we all need as much help as we possibly can get to stay resilient and positive and optimistic so that we can make things better. So to me, jumpstarting upward spirals is how I help myself and my clients to be that kind of resilient when push comes up on shove. Hopefully you think so too. I would love to hear your feedback on this in any episode. I've been getting so much great feedback on the recent science episodes. I know I've said it before, but I really am excited about it. And in a month, we're going to have our annual Q&A episode. So hopefully you're hearing this and you've got some questions. I want to hear them. How could you do that? Well, let's tell you. You could email me. It's info at darlene.coach. You can find me on Instagram. That is also darlene.coach. Try to keep it easy. Feel free to shoot me a DM. Love to hear from you. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. Our Substack is better than fine.substack.com. If you're a fan of the show, I hope you've already subscribed. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure to hit that like button. And if you share it with everybody, that's how this show actually gets to grow. If you're sharing on socials, please do tag me. I always appreciate hearing from you. Thank you so much for being a fan of Better Than Fine. Take care of yourselves and be well.